available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everybody, to the postseason podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site of the Scout.com network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com, the USC site on the Scout.com network. And we are the podcast of champions in the regular season and the championship game are in the books. So we wanted to do a show just for you, kind of talking about the championship game, take a look ahead to the bowl matchups and kind of where the podcast of champion goes goes from here. Uh, we want to make it interactive. If you have questions about what's going on during the season, about where your team is in the bowl game, all that kind of stuff, you can email us, pac12podcast at gmail.com, or go to our website, pac12podcast.com. You can leave little comments there. You can tweet us, at pac12podcast, and of course, leave it a voicemail. We love that, 641-715-3900, extension 734-972. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Go to iTunes and just search for Podcast of Champions. We're the most popular Pac-12 podcast out there, aren't we, Dave? I don't know. I know there's a couple I, more now. We have. I to. can't. I can't even imagine there's another one out there that commands our our reach, <laughs> our our tremendous tremendous you know ability to cover everything about the league. We do our um, best. You kind of glossed over. I, I think the main thing we should talk about. Right? Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what what in the hell is going on with uh with with USC? Yeah. So, uh, I tweeted this morning, Dave. Um, I think, and you know, when the beginning of the season, UCLA had some like kettlebell stuff going on. Uh-huh. There was a couple rap moguls involved in, you know, the football program. You would think that's yeah, about Yeah, no, as- UCLA, I think, won the preseason. Yeah. I mean, you think it's fairly crazy, right? Like, you right. know, what go, I mean, that pales in comparison, probably just to the last 24 hours for USC, let alone the whole darn yeah. season. I mean, it's, been an absolute you know can i say shit show shit show that's really what it's been i think uh, you can and i yeah, think you should it's a podcast yeah so i'm up at the pac-12 championship game and you know that's a big deal that usc's got an interim coach and then they hired him and then they he, he's you know all the stuff that's going into that and how the team's going to play well they came out and laid an egg um played pretty well in the third quarter but that's it well you know we'll go over all that stuff you know usually that'd be kind of a big deal uh, my beat writer Dan Weber and I are driving back from the Bay Area, and we record like a, a podcast on the way, an emergency podcast because it's like, hey, those, those crazy stuffs going on, and we didn't even scratch the surface yet. So we get home. I want to take a nap, and I can't because now my Gerard actually started breaking the news that USC assistant coaches were going to get fired, and I was like, holy crap! So all that stuff was going on. We end up getting a conference call, you know, Sunday evening. And Clay Helton does confirm that four of the, the nine assistant coaches are fired and they're going to really have graduate assistants come in and replace them until after the bowl game. So there could be more guys fired. It's a skeleton crew leading into the bowl game. They got to play Wisconsin and the holiday bowl and all this crazy stuff. Oh yeah. The, the bowl selection came out. So like, man, that's, this is about as crazy of a day as you're going to get until the next day. <laughs> <laughs> like, so you're trying to recover from that really crazy day, which was crazy. Then Steve Sarkeesian, 
uh, you know, TMZ gets it out first, and we kind of got on it, and uh, and I really had no interest in trying to become an ADA uh, legal expert. Like I had to become uh-huh. like a sanctions compliance expert. But Sark is suing USC for breach of contract and like 14 different things because in you know California law, being an alcoholic is actually a disability. And he's saying that USC basically like kicked them to the curb and abandoned them. Then USC comes out, which we don't think we're going to hear from them for months. We They come out with a strong statement saying, no, we tried to get him to, you know, get help for all this time. And he refused. And so really strong kind of legal stuff comes out. I don't know what we're going to hear. We might be, you know, it might be radio silence for quite a while. Maybe it's a settlement. I don't know. But both sides coming out firing with high powered lawyers and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, just trying to recover from that. And then the, the court comes back and rules against the NCAA that Todd McNair, his lawsuit going against them. And they're really strong language about how the NCAA basically should not have found USC guilty because they, the link between USC knowing what, what's happening with Reggie Bush's family was Todd McNair and the lawsuits basically saying, there's no way, you know, McNair did not know. So there's this whole crap going on all at the same time. And the message board's going crazy. We're just putting up tons of content. And yeah, is that a good summary, I guess? I thought that was really <laughs> fair. You know, I, I didn't think they could top, you know, Lane Kiffin being fired on the tarmac. Uh, Josh Shaw, the whole, you know, ankle sprain, saving the nephew thing. But this does it. I mean, in a big, big way. Um, <laughs> You fire, I mean, Steve Sarkeesian was the head coach two months ago. Yeah. And now he's suing the school for $30 million. Yeah. It's incredible. Just Steve Sarkeesian being the head coach seems like, like three years ago. Like, does it not? Yeah. I mean, just stunning. I mean, I think if you're a, if you're a fan of another Pac-12 school, you've got to be really happy at the job Pat Hayden has done (laughs) at USC. You've got to be really, really just feeling good about that. And like in the direction of that program. So you're, you're, so if you don't know, Dave's referring to Pat Hayden, who's the USC athletic director. Um, and he's the highest paid athletic director in the country. Two and a half million dollars <laughs> per. He gets fifty thousand dollars a week. How much create... of that money comes from the other Pac-12 schools? <laughs> yeah, they should maybe they should all pitch in. Um, and it, are you know, we convinced it, he's not a UCLA mole? Like, are we convinced that UCLA isn't paying him like half of that? Some of the, the USC fans feel he's a Notre Dame mole because he was the Notre Dame commentator for years. Um, oh, he's a double agent. He yeah. They turned think, when he was over there. They think he's a double agent. You know, he would wear green ties sometimes when he was USC athletic director. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like Notre Dame week. Like what? He just has no concept of all that stuff. Um, but then, if, and I haven't dug into the, the lawsuit as much, but you see the tweets and we put out stories and stuff. I mean, Steve Sarkeesian, and I thought this was what he was getting paid. He was only getting paid like two and a half or two, you know, two point six something million dollars a year. But the day before he was hired on December 2nd, 2013, he, he was hired on December 3rd, 2013. December 2nd, he started an LLC company. I think it was called Sark Enterprises. And they entered into a contract with USC that he gets paid a million dollars a year or Sark Enterprises does. That he's the full, the, the owner of. So basically to not make it look like they're overpaying him because whatever they were paying him were overpaying him. A million of dollars <laughs> extra was going to this LLC, you know, marketing company that what, whatever Steve Sarkeesian was marketing, I have no idea. So that's even like, you know, some of the stuff and citing, you know, stuff that the lawyers for Sark was ci- citing of why he was doing a good job is a bleacher report article that gave him an A plus rating. <laughs> After they beat Arizona State, 
Now, they didn't reference any of the games after he lost 17-12 to Washington, any articles about that, but they referenced a Bleacher Report article in the lawsuit that said, this guy thought Sark was doing a bang-up job, A-plus, after beating Arizona State. Oh, my goodness. You can't make this up. It's so good. It's just so good. I mean, it's across the board. It's so good. Um <laughs> And I mean, uh, we got to talk about this game because USC yeah. played in the Pac-12 championship game just literally just like three days ago. <laughs> uh, they lost to 41-22 to Stanford. I mean, do you want to play the, uh, the the thing? Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'm so all, I, I you're apologize. all over the place. I am all over the place. Uh, but we had so the the away team was USC Trojans. They represented the South, and then representing the North uh, was the home team at Levi Stadium. Stanford Cardinal. Yeah, so Stanford won 41-22, um, really dominated the game, especially in the first half. They only were up 13-3, but it felt like it should have been. I mean, again, we're talking about David Shaw in the red zone here, but it <laughs> felt like it should have been about 27-3 at that point. Yeah. Uh, they they were just rolling all over USC, but then they'd get down in the red zone and it would be, you know, three wildcat plays and then a bad run and then, you know, four and out or whatever it was. Um, they missed a few opportunities, which allowed USC to kind of climb back into it in the third quarter. Uh, but then Stanford, again, just kind of got that train rolling again behind Christian McCaffrey, who I think put the exclamation point on his Heisman campaign. I think uh, Justin Wilcox will be escorting him to uh, New York for the ceremony. Um, but, I mean, he's free now. He can he can do that. Uh, but, yeah, this was, I mean, this was a pretty resounding win for Stanford. And uh, if one if one of the top four teams lost, you know, Clemson or Alabama, I think this would have been enough to propel Stanford into the top four and into the playoff. I think you're right. It just, uh, it went chalk, uh, for the entire, you know, for the top four. So Stanford really didn't have a shot. And if you really look back at that Northwestern game, they're in, uh, without that Northwestern game. Um, but yeah, they, Stanford dominated the game. I don't know how it was only 13 to three after the first half. And then for some reason, and you know, USC, you could talk about Clay Helton and they've had second half comebacks and they did in this one. They took the lead actually in the third quarter. But they've been down, Dave, at the end of the first quarter for eight straight games. I mean, that's just not a good way to start, especially, you know, you won five of those. Um, but that's not, you know, you're going to play the good teams and start down in the first quarter. You're not going to win a lot. But they won, USC won about 12 minutes of the game and came out and just was running the ball well, throwing a little quick slants, kind of stuff in the middle of the field that they weren't doing before. And the defense played pretty well and got aggressive and was blitzing more. But they got away, Dave, to me. Um, from kind of what was successful against UCLA, where it was a lot more man coverage. And I think they just tried to do too much against Stanford. And they didn't have a spy on McCaffrey. And he had 471 or 61 yards or whatever, like to, you know, total yards. He ended up having a triple-triple, which I don't know if I've seen. I'm sure it's happened before. He had actually over 200 yards rushing. So, you know, triple digits yardage and rushing, triple-digit mm -hmm. receiving yards, and triple-digit return yard. And he caught a touchdown. He threw a touchdown and ran a touchdown and Kevin Hogan caught a touchdown, threw a touchdown and ran a touchdown. I think it's only happened like one player happened like once all season or something like that. And it, two players had in the same game. So no, no, you know, mystery there that Justin Wilcox was fired within 24 hours after this one. 
Yeah, that was that was impressive. And I, my favorite part of this entire game, I think, was reading your Twitter during the game <laughs> and the multiple times you referenced loud cursing coming from the coach's <laughs> press box, which you just know is, all right, Justin Wilcox probably has a pretty good idea if this doesn't go very well. He probably won't have a job very soon. And just getting more and more livid throughout that game as Christian McCaffrey runs all over his defense. That was, uh, I think it was a design flaw, David, Levi Stadium. Cause I talked to people that work there and like, yeah, the coach's box is next to the press box and you can hear them in there. Like you could hear their calls and I'm like, that can't be good. Someone tweeted me like, what is Levi Stadium built with like cardboard and Legos? I'm like, I don't know, but we could hear it. And I tweeted out a video where you could kind of see the wall and kind of see the field and hear him screaming. It was actually a good play for USC. But they were like, F yeah, you know, it was like some exciting play, but you could see how clear it was that we could hear. So all these media people, you know, there's like five or six of us that were close to the wall and we're all just like giggling every time it happens. You're trying to do your work and all you can hear is the coaches like screaming in the wall, you know, next to you. It's so good. Um, yeah, this one, you know, I, I thought USC, you know, I thought they ran the ball okay. Um, I thought Justin Davis, I thought Ronald Jones both ran the ball okay. It just, they couldn't really generate anything consistent throughout the game. I thought Cody Kessler, once again, threw underneath a ton, threw yeah. short of the sticks a ton Too when he really needed to make plays downfield. And is that just a design flaw on the offense, or do you get the impression that's something with Kessler where he's just not maybe willing to take chances downfield? I think it's kind of a little of both. We, we've asked Helton about it a couple of times, and he's. it's weird when they talk about it. They're saying... Well, you know, we, we have the play, the routes, there's like underneath routes and deeper routes. And if the routes deeper cover, then, you know, we teach them to throw it down, you know, check it down. And like you saw a two minute drill. Sometimes that shouldn't even be an option, you know? And I think there's definitely opportunities. We saw one play where Jalen Green was running one on one, uh, with the safety, uh, doing the, I think it was kind of a corner route. And I, hey, that's a good shot to take. And they end up you know, on third and long, threw it short to Juju, you know, short of the sticks. And it's like you have to take that one-on-one matchup down the field. So I think some of it is Cody Kessler being, you know, somewhat gun shy about it. But also, I don't know if you want those kind of options there, Dave. If you're if it's two minute drill and you're down by a couple scores, you know, five yard outs are not the way to go. You have to take a chance downfield. If you throw a pick, whatever, that's your only shot to win. Throw in a bunch of five yard passes, you you don't have any shot to win. Yeah, and we've seen it too often, I think, from Kessler to think it's. It's just the offense or just Kessler. I yeah. think it's, it's clearly something that's a combination of both. Cause this was, I mean, this was the case against Stanford the first time too. I think they had a, a drive at the end of that game where it was just a lot of underneath stuff, no urgency, running a two minute drill, like it's a five minute drive. Um, and you know, that's obviously a, a little bit of an issue for Stanford. I mean, it's the, this program has suddenly turned into just consistent dominant program and they've had one down year last year where they still you know finished i think they ended up eight and five um but overall i mean they've been to a ton of bcs or new year's games now um they're going to another rose bowl um do you think i mean this is crazy i mean do you do you remember when stanford was a bad program like oh yeah 10 10 years ago yeah they're sending it's, another you know player to the heisman you know, ceremony. It's the fourth one since 2009. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, it's just nuts. And, you know, McCaffrey, 
it was funny listening to the um, the Alabama game on, or watching the Alabama game, but listening to the commentators during Derrick Henry's performance, where you know he had a nice game, ran for uh, over a hundred yards, and you know ground out some tough yards, and they basically you know anointed him the Heisman winner, and then McCaffrey had four hundred total yards in this game <laughs> between you know all the all-purpose stuff, um, and it seems like he's generating a lot of buzz now as kind of the presumptive Heisman guy. I mean, at least from national media perspective, I think ESPN poll came out today and, you know, six of the, you know, 10 guys that they used for it predicted that he would be the, or that said that he would be the first place guy. I mean, obviously you can't release your vote, but did you, have you gotten that kind of sense that people are kind of turning toward McCaffrey now? Yeah. You know, uh, Scout did like a poll of some of the Heisman voters in the network. And I, I told them, I thought that Henry was going to won, was going to win. Um, but really it's, you know, we're seeing more of the polls that are coming out and you're not supposed to reveal and all that kind of crap, but it seems like he's got a real shot because he had such a big game. Uh, and that's, you know, I think in a big game, a big stage like that, that's a lot of ways you win a Heisman, you know, like when, uh, when like Carson Palmer won for USC, he had a huge game against Notre Dame. It was his national game. And I think, you know, playing against USC, even though they had four losses and now have five, I think it was the Pac-12 championship game and because he had such a huge, you know, such huge numbers and was so dominant, I think it kind of, you know, helped him a little bit. Could it be another Stanford player finishing second? And we've seen that happen before. I don't know, but I think he's got more of a shot now, Dave, than I thought really before. Yeah. And that would be, I think that'd be really cool, um, for, especially because Stanford isn't in the playoff. Um, the two other contenders, Deshaun Watson and Derrick Henry, the two other finalists are both in the playoff. So they get, you know, they get that kind of boost because typically when you're a team that has the potential to win the national championship, that gives you a boost with the, um, with the Heisman. But I think his year, I mean, he broke, he broke, what was it? Barry Sanders' all time, all purpose record. He did. In, in fewer touches, he did it. Yeah. Which it was is, more I think, games. The bigger thing to keep in mind. Yeah. It was more games, but it was fewer touches when he broke the record. So, I mean, that's, yeah, it's pretty impressive. So that's nuts. Um, and then for USC, just, uh, you know, it was, we kind of talked about this going into it, but they've had those kind of peaks and valleys. Um, you know, they had the big valley against Oregon where they lost by 20 or yeah, I think it was 20. And then they, you know, beat UCLA pretty good and then had another valley. Is this, I I mean, is this kind of the worst case scenario you think for USC going into that game? Let's leave out the Sark stuff, leave out all the like nonsense that's happened since, but to hire Helton on that Monday following the UCLA game, and then have the team lose by, you know, 20 against Stanford in the Pac-12 championship game? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what uh, the USC brass was afraid of. And I think, in my opinion, that's why they, you know, they wanted Helton. And so they kind of shoehorned him in there on that Monday, which I don't think did the team or the players. Uh, I mean, I don't think that helped at all. Um, there's, you know, the distraction all week leading up to the championship game. I don't think Stanford was thinking about coaching changes or things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it was. So it, the the problem would be if the brass wanted Helton, can you would it, you get the support after you get blown out by Stanford? So they kind of wanted to shoehorn it in there, do it beforehand. So I think that kind of hurt the team. But you would hope it, you know, there I'm sure they were hoping for a win, but at least a close loss to get blown out. Now you're you know, you're kind of behind the eight ball a little bit, and it doesn't get much easier. You got to play Wisconsin, who's a ranked team in the Holiday Bowl. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see. They're going to have a you know a really skeleton coaching staff kind of preparing for that game and then they open the season with Alabama so 
you could hire a head coach and he could start off 0 and 3 as the permanent head coach. Not really what, you know, Pat Hayden and the, and the administration would like to do. So yeah, I don't, I think it was about as bad of a start as you could have for the Clay Helton era, the, the full time Clay Helton era. Well, yeah. And if you look at it, so it's Wisconsin, which I don't think Wisconsin's all that good, but they're not a bad team by any means. So they could lose that game. And then opening the season next year with Alabama, I mean, he could start 0 and 3 as the full time head coach. Yeah. That's not, that's not great. No. Um, <laughs> the, the interesting thing for me is, I mean, given the way they hired him immediately after the UCLA win, you know, maybe it was the significance of the rivalry. Uh, but do you get the sense that if they had beaten Oregon and beaten them and it was a pretty, you know, well coached game and they looked pretty good that they would have just hired him, you know, two days after that going into the UCLA game? Or do you think it was an end of the regular season move regardless? I think it was going to be whenever the stock was high. So if it was, if it was a high after beating Oregon, they'd be worried about losing to UCLA. So they hired him beforehand. So I, I kind of think so, Dave. That's, just the, you know, from talking to sources and getting the feel, it's just, they've got really got, you know, this trigger happy two years ago when they hired Sark, you know, there wasn't this long search. Yeah. You talked to some people. We want our guy. Let's just go get him. And then I got the same sort of sense of, you know, the same thing was going on in this one where they wanted to get Helton. They needed, they didn't need to be in the, the news for all the wrong reasons, which ironically after they hire Helton just it almost got worse. Not that it's his fault, but you know, there's crazy stuff going on. Uh, so I kind of think, yeah, if they beat Oregon, if they, you know, if they were impressive beating Oregon, they might have just named them right then. Yeah, and I, it just—it's just so funny to think about USC not really going after or not just kind of waiting for an opportunity to hire an interim coach. It just seems so—I guess from an outsider perspective—it just seems so baffling that USC would just kind of, you know, Helton might turn out to be good, but just kind of settle like that. Yeah. And I think they, you know, they wanted to change the culture or did they really? Because if you want to change the culture, you don't hire the guy that was brought in by Lane Kiffin and, and was learning under Sark. I mean, it's just not, that's not really changing the culture. Now he could, I'm not saying he can't, but to change the, really change the culture, if you're serious about it, you almost have to bring someone that has no, no idea what anything's going on in the program. But that right. would really ruffle, I think would ruffle a lot of the feathers of the people that are there and they feel comfortable and they, you know, so. I mean, I think a lot of the fans think, well, of course they want to go after the best guy. No, I mean, not necessarily if they feel like, well, he's not going to do it our way. Like, does that really mean you're getting the best guy? If you know that this dude is going to mix a lot of things up and do things completely different, is that a reason not to hire him if you think he's the best guy? And I feel like sometimes administrations, and I I'd certainly feel in this case USC, did that where it was more about, well, how does he fit with what we do as opposed to who'd be the best ultimate football coach that could win the most football games? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I, I think a lot of schools are guilty of that. I don't think it's just a USC thing. I think schools that have some weird sense of their own defined culture do that to an extent. I mean, Oregon did it with Helfrich. They didn't really go after anyone else. They just kind of hired internally. UCLA has long had a history of just hiring guys with UCLA ties, Jim Mora notwithstanding. Um, I, I think it's just uh, with a lot of these administrators who are out of school for so long, they just want people who are familiar with their institution and they've got so, such a sense of institutional pride that they, I don't know, there's a sense of elitism and you, they think, you know, we need to hire a guy who understands us and who is, you know, one of us and the whole deal. And I think it's, it's bonkers. It's bad hiring and it wouldn't, it wouldn't stand in any kind of corporate world, but <laughs> I guess it works in, uh, in coaching circles and universities and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and you think about it. 
somehow USC went five and zero in the Pac-12 South. Like, how crazy is that? How the, the, we, you know, how tough we thought everyone's going to be, and somehow this team that had like multiple coaches and everything beat everybody in the South. Yeah. Like, I just it's a head scratcher. Yeah, the baffling fun season, fun <laughs> season in the Pac-12, and we've got bowl games. We've got bowl games to talk about. Um, it's. Uh, General sense, kind of a disappointing slate of games, I would say, just because, you know, generally the Pac-12 bowl tie-ins aren't great, and they match up a, a lot of decent-ish teams or pretty good teams from the Pac-12 with kind of teams that are a little bit of a rung below um, in other leagues. But um, it's yeah, it's it's more football. It's more yeah. football to watch, and that's always fun. But in those cases, you, I mean, the Pac-12 should have a better record because usually you have, like, the number three Pac-12 team playing like the number five Big Ten team. But the team thing is, the Pac-12 teams know that the other teams are a rung below, and so they play down to that level fairly often. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, a lot of good bowl matchups. It looks like uh, September or December 19th, um, there's going to be a couple of Pac-12 games, um, and we're going to do a long bowl preview, maybe a couple of them, depending on how many we can get to each week. But um, this is essentially a week and change from now. Um, Arizona against New Mexico in the, I don't even know what bowl game this is, the Gildan New Mexico Bowl on ESPN at 11 a.m. on the 19th, and then BYU and Utah in the Holy War in the Las Vegas Bowl on ABC at 1230 on the 19th. Um, how much were you hoping for the Vegas Bowl um, from a USC perspective? Yeah, I mean, just from a personal like when can I get it over with? Kind of bowl. Yeah. The <laughs> when Vegas can bowl, I get this season done with? The Vegas Bowl would have been good. I I kind of like the Holiday Bowl. I had already made like plans to travel back east, and the Holiday Bowl and the Vegas Bowl were kind of outside of those plans. Like the Foster Farms or Sun Bowl, I would not have. It would have I had to change things. It would have been kind of a mess. So I'm cool with the the Holiday Bowl. I, you know, I went last year, and I hate Qualcomm. It's a dump, but um. Yeah, I would have preferred. I know, Dave, you would have preferred Las Vegas. Oh, well. I was, I was pining for it. I was, I was actively campaigning on Twitter for it, and it just didn't happen. Um, and then uh, Washington State is going to the Sun Bowl against Miami on the twenty sixth. Uh, Washington going bowling, uh, not to a Pac twelve affiliated bowl, but they are going to the Heart of Dallas Bowl in Dallas to take on Southern Miss. Washington. Here's an interesting note. Washington early eight and a half point favorite in their bowl game. So they are favored to finish the year with a winning record in a year again where I predicted them to win three games. Wow. Proving once again that I know nothing. <laughs> um, then, uh, the net cap on that day, UCLA taking on five and seven Nebraska, um, in the, uh, Foster Farms Bowl in Levi Stadium on ESPN. Um, That'll be the third matchup between UCLA and Nebraska in four years. And, and then Nebraska's then five we, and seven, right? What's that? Nebraska's like five and seven. Nebraska is five and seven. They got a special dispensation to play in the bowl game via their high APR graduation rate. Oh. Yeah. That's that's what you want to see on the field. Yeah, you really do. You really do. <laughs> um then on the 29th, Cal is playing Air Force in the Armed Forces Bowl in Fort Worth. Uh, again, not a Pac-12 affiliated bowl. They had to go elsewhere because uh, Pac-12 had too many bowl eligible teams. Uh, on the 30th, USC uh, taking on Wisconsin in the Holiday Bowl. USC in the Holiday Bowl for the second straight year. 
the Rose Bowl matchup, which we'll talk about a ton uh, leading up to that game, uh, number six Stanford against number five Iowa, should be a very fun game. Um, and then on the second, actually after the Rose Bowl, uh, Oregon takes on TCU in the Alamo Bowl, which is also probably going to be a very, very fun game. And then the final game, of course, the headliner, Arizona State, West Virginia in the Cactus Bowl. Yeah. In Phoenix. Everyone circled that one. Yeah, circle that one on your calendar. Why is that game on January 2nd? I, I don't know. Um, shouldn't that be on like December 15th? <laughs> that shouldn't even be four. <laughs> I, yeah, the, I'm, I'm not a, I'm kind of an old school guy. Like the whole bowls after January 1st, you know, now we got the playoff and there's all kinds of crap going on. But yeah, I, I, and I think part of the problem is, Dave, that you have all these January 1st bowls that are like based in Florida. They didn't, we don't really have any on the West Coast besides you got the big one, you got the Rose Bowl. But there's no like Capital One Bowl that's become like this big deal, and there's no bowl like that kind of out there. Like you know, is it the Holiday or is it the Alamo? Um, I think the Alamo is ranked higher, um, but yeah, we we don't really have the kind of more traditional January first bowls, or, or at least traditional in the last twenty years or whatever that happen out here. They're all kind of in Florida, so they have like SEC teams and ACC teams and Big Twelve teams instead of Pac twelve teams. Yeah, what what needs to happen, I think, is Vegas needs to build a real stadium, and then you uh, the Pac-12 needs to have a matchup with the SEC in Vegas. Yeah, because I think that would be compelling. I think that would get fans from all over the country to come to Vegas, and you have a you know get them to build a nice stadium there. Because really, the Pac-12 championship game should be in Vegas as well. Yeah, they just need a real stadium. Um, Really, all I want to do is go to Vegas. That's that's <laughs> honestly the entire theme of this this podcast right now. And what a waste that you have the Royal Purple, uh, Royal Purple, <laughs> Las Vegas Bowl between Utah and BYU. Yeah, like, what? I know, I know. That's I know. That's not what you want. That's uh, not what you want. That's not gonna. That's not gonna. You know, give a bunch of money to the city. Um. So yeah, I, I think it, the 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 really cool thing would be to see a Pac-12 SEC affiliated bowl. That um, would be great. Really, really anywhere. I would take it anywhere. Um, if they wants to be, a, if there's an affiliated bowl in Tennessee, I'd I'd be down for that because yeah. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Even if it's like fourth place Pac-12 versus fifth place SEC, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, and I think you get the teams to travel from the SEC. Like, hey, you want to come to Vegas? Like, that's something. You know, hey, come on, you do that instead of staying in a geographic region region all the time get out there yeah. so that, i think that's a great idea you don't get a lot of those so that would be good dave you know? yeah that'd be a lot of fun it'd be a lot of <laughs> any fun. of the matchups like i you know utah byu is probably you know it's interesting with both teams being nine and three um, I, I think the ucla nebraska game could be a little scary for ucla just because nebraska does not have the real profile of five and seven team like if you look at if you look at the way they lost oh. this year they they should be like an eight win team um BYU Utah should be fun. Uh, it's not a whole lot of fun outside of those. I mean, USC Wisconsin might be okay. I haven't watched a whole lot of Wisconsin this year, though. Yeah, me neither. I mean, they're kind of a quiet nine and three. Uh, not a great offense. I mean, I, I yeah. mean, of course, the Rose Bowl, Iowa and Stanford. Yeah, uh, that and and Oregon TCU, I think, are going to be a lot of fun. Um, but. Yeah, it's just it's not very it's just not great tie-ins. I mean, ASU West Virginia, I, I I don't have a feel for it, but it's matching up a six and six team and a seven and five team. Um, and West Virginia was pretty disappointing this year, and so was ASU. So that's kind of a you know to have that game in January is just kind of 
I, I think it's kind of rubbing their noses in it. Um, you know, Washington State, and Miami. I mean, I didn't. You know, you think about that, and I, I a lot of people felt Washington State was going to get the Holiday Bowl. Yeah. Um, I don't know what kind of, you know, happened there, but playing, you know, both teams are eight and four playing Miami. You know, traditional power. Uh, that could be interesting too. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. Did you get like I was driving when this whole thing was going on? But most of the, the talk we were hearing is that Washington State was going to get the holiday bowl. So I was a little surprised. It changed, it changed like literally the day of. Um, Stuart Mandel tweeted it like the night before that don't be surprised if USC gets picked. And then basically everyone was saying USC was going to get picked that morning. So I think, I don't know. I think they really liked having them last year. Um, and I think it was just a better fit for what they wanted to do. I think they, I think for them, I think the eyeballs that they would get for USC Wisconsin was probably better than Washington State Wisconsin. And I think when they were saying that Washington State or they were given indications that it'd be Washington State, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that was still when USC had an interim instead of a full time head coach. Oh, okay. And a lot of bulls are leery of having, you know, an interim coach as the as the coach at that point, just because it's you know, it's a little funky. Yeah. So that'd be my guess. That's why I don't buy the whole bowl proje- projection thing, especially they do it like a month before the season's over. It's like, yeah. so many, even when all the games were done, except for like the championship games, there was people like just going back and forth. I had heard USC from every, you know, from Foster Farms to Vegas to Holiday to even maybe the Sun. And I was like, the games were done basically. Like, well, how is this, this wide of a range? So I don't really put a lot of stock into the bowl projections, even, you know, during the seasons, especially. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at it, UCLA ended up in the Foster Farms, which is the fourth place Pac-12 bowl, but UCLA probably should have dropped to Vegas. I mean, there's, there, there are two six and three teams that had to drop down because UCLA at five and four got picked for the Foster Farms bowl because of proximity. And you can't predict that stuff. I mean, that's just, you know, a preference of the bowl organizers to get, you know, butts in the seats the day after Christmas. Um, and that's a hard thing to predict, you know, a month in advance when you don't even know how the, conference standings are going to shake out yet yeah right, so, so now are you are you very excited i mean i'm sure you plan your whole christmas vacation around uh going to santa clara you know i try to make the best of it um <laughs> I, we're gonna you know have christmas in san francisco which you know there are worse things in the world yeah yeah uh, that's cool yeah it won't be that bad and you know it's that's the day before the game so typically on the day before the game there isn't any media obligation because the teams you know practice Typical college teams don't practice the day before the game or they don't have an open practice the day before the game. Um, so media availability is limited. So yeah, I'll get a Christmas in San Francisco, but it would have been nice to have this all wrapped up, uh, the Saturday before. But what are you going to do? College football. It is college football. Yeah. So we've got, uh, we've got some questions. Oh, let's, let's, let's jump into them then. Yeah. Let's jump in to some questions. All right. This is from our man or I, I honestly don't know, man, woman, whatever. Uh, Hitler Day Almond. Uh, Pac-12 scheduling philosophy plus the LA rivalry. One, I'm writing this on Friday afternoon, so events of Saturday may make this seem all, fo- make this all seem foolish, but here goes anyway. I was glad to hear you guys come to your senses about how a Pac-12 champion Stanford has the inside track to the playoff if Clemson gets knocked out, because their schedule has been so much deeper than North Carolina's. A couple of weeks ago, y'all were indulging in the silliness going around at the time about the Pac-12 making it too tough on themselves with a nine-game conference schedule, a championship game, and tough out-of-conference matchups. 
I think instead the strategy has been to make it unquestionable that a Pac-12 championship champion with one loss will always be ahead of any other one-loss champions, and a two-loss champion would be ahead of many one-loss teams. Stanford's predicament, assuming they beat USC, is entirely because they screwed up their opener against Northwestern, as you've said many times. Going to an eight-game schedule wouldn't have done anything to fix it. Can we put to bed the idea that Pac-12 tough scheduling is anything but a good thing? Here's uh, here's my counterpoint, and I agree with a lot of what you're saying. My counterpoint is look at the Big Ten and look at Michigan State and Iowa and those teams. I mean, Iowa is still ahead of Stanford, and if they had won, they still would have been ahead of Stanford. I can't picture the person who actually thinks that Iowa is better than Stanford. And they played a really weak schedule where they avoided a lot of really good teams. They didn't have to play Ohio State. They didn't have to play Michigan State until the championship game. They didn't have to play Michigan. They didn't have to play the three other best teams in the Big Ten by virtue of playing, I mean, really, by virtue of playing an eight-game conference schedule. Um, and so I, I, I get what you're saying, and I think you're right. I think it does give them a competitive advantage when the records are the same. But I think it gives too many losses. Like it gives, I mean, if, if Stanford as a two loss team is significantly better, and I think they are than Iowa, or I, I think they're probably better than Michigan State, uh, but they're, they're stuck behind them because they have two losses and they took a loss, you know, in a non-conference schedule that was at 9 a.m. on the road. Why are they playing that? Yeah. And, and then lost to Oregon and, you know, they're going to play Oregon every year, but. Still, I mean, it's a tough schedule, uh, but yeah, I mean, generally agree with you. With this specific example, I agree with you, but as a general rule, I think it does. It probably leans towards more of a disadvantage than an advantage, but I get what you're saying. And I, I disagree that, like, Stanford, if they had beaten Northwestern, they would have been in, but they would have probably been behind Alabama. Um, so I don't think just because you're in the Pac-12, you're guaranteed uh, any one loss over every other one-loss conference. I think they would have been above, like, Michigan State and um, you know, any of the, like Oklahoma, but don't think they would have been above, uh, Alabama there. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, I agree. I think for the most part, one loss, uh, Pac-12 teams are going to get, I think, a, a favorable, you know, rating as opposed to other one loss teams, but there's still some inherent SEC bias in there. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, I think that's going to be present, especially now that the committee is kind of trending back towards the Big Ten and the SEC. So, And then number two, uh, I've been surprised to hear over the course of this season, you two repeatedly play down the notion that the L.A. schools are in a zero-sum relationship. That is, USC's gain is UCLA's loss and vice versa when it comes to recruits, money, or other resources. Is Los Angeles really that big of a town? Kind of. I mean, I, I, I think both teams can be pretty good. Um, I think there's potential for both teams to be, you know, uh, I think 10 and 2 programs. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you, you, you have to have one be really good and one be really bad. What do you think? No, I agree. I think, mean, you know, there's plenty of, you know, so many, the whole Pac 12 gets, you know, players from Southern California. So I think there's definitely enough to go around for both programs. And as we saw this year, even though both teams kind of had their stumbles, um, you know, they, they were playing for the Pac-12 South and that, that game was important. And, you know, I, I think it's certainly that's capable, but you know, they're, they're capable of doing that and that the town can support both. Um, it's not like USC and UCLA are selling out all their games. You're not talking that, but I think as far as having two really good teams, you could have that. I think the league is better when 
you know, whether we, there really were five teams in the South that could actually win it. Um, but you know, I don't have any issues with, you know, USC and UCLA both being good. I think that's certainly cap, you know, they're, they're capable of doing that. But right now, if you look, it's, it's the North. It's really the Stanford Oregon show that's been dominating things. USC and UCLA could get there, but they you know, I don't think they're there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's enough of a recruiting base for UCLA and USC to both be pretty good at the same time. Um, I, I don't know if they're just because of the nature of the Pac-12 and the tough schedule. I don't know if they're ever going to be both like, you know, undefeated going into the UCLA USC game ever again. I mean, that might happen, but I doubt it. Uh, but I, I think both teams can be competitive, and I think that final game of the year can more often than not be pretty decisive. Uh, in the Pac-12 South, which is kind of, I think, what everybody from both schools would like every year. Yeah. Um, all right. So that was good stuff there. And then, um, Bill asks, uh, subject line Jim Mora. And he says, this one is for the Bruin guy, which I'm assuming is me. You're not a, you're I not a Bruin. Uh, guy. I, I actually guest lectured once there, but I don't think that would make me. You guest lectured at UCLA? <laughs> it was a, as an engineer? No, it was, uh, it was an entrepreneurial thing. So some guy had an entrepreneurial class and they had me come uh-huh. in and speak. Yeah. That's, that's kind of sad that UCLA had to get a, a USC guy to come <laughs> in to speak about entrepreneurial. Uh, it was years ago. I'm sure they've yeah. got, you know. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? Um, all right. Jim Mora has been there for four years. He obviously did a great job of picking you guys up off the floor, but since then the trajectory of the program has gone sideways. How happy are you and the general Bruin fan base with Mora? Do you think he has peaked as a coach? In terms of a letter grade, I give him a B or B minus. Fair. Fight on, Bill says. Um, I think it's fair. If you're judging strictly by results on the field, I think a B is a solid. I think that's probably pretty, pretty fair. Um, I think what people miss who maybe don't know UCLA all that well is the biggest impact Moore has had isn't necessarily on the field. There's been a lot of culture change in the program, in the administration with commitment of more resources. I mean, it, I, I I don't know if anybody else read this over the years, but UCLA has long had a rep- reputation for not paying assistant coaches, not investing in the program, you know, not having good facilities and the whole thing. And Mora, by virtue of winning, but also by virtue of kind of his force of personality, has brought about a lot of those changes. UCLA is putting in a football facility. They've really upped the pool of money for assistant coaches. And I think that's actually where the biggest impact is. So I think if you factor all of that in, I think he's been probably a B plus, A minus. Um, I, I think there's some obvious things on the field where it could be better. I think fourth down decision making is one of my biggest issues with the program as a whole. But there's also, you know, the defense is fairly conservative. They don't always make the best, you know, probabilistic decisions on, you know, on offense. Um, but for the most part, I think it's, he's done a fairly good job as to your characterization that it's kind of gone sideways. Uh, I think it has plateaued a little bit. Um, again, you can look at the results on the field. It, it went, you know, nine and five first year, then 10 and three, 10 and three. And then this year it's probably going to be, you know, eight and five, nine and four. Um, and I, I think they've still got the potential to take another big step up next year because Josh Rosen will be a sophomore. The team, even though it returned a ton of starters this year, it's going to return a ton of starters again next year. Um, so it should again be a fairly experienced team, but there is that concern now. And I think there is some pressure on UCLA to put it together next year because 
The rest of the conference loses a fair amount. Even USC, which returns a ton of talent, loses Cody Kessler, loses a starting quarterback. So there's going to be a little bit of uncertainty there. And then in the north, I mean, Washington might rise up as a, a power up there, but there's a little bit of uncertainty up there. So the stage is set a little bit for UCLA to have a big year, but I think it's it's now become a little bit necessary for that to happen. No, I think it's all fair. And, you know, I don't know, grade-wise it's tough, you know, B, B+, plus, B, you know, A-, minus, something like that. But, yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is he did, was able to change the culture and do a lot of, you know, positive things. There have definitely been, you know, and we've seen a lot of Pac-12 teams have this, this inconsistency where you can't do it week in and week out. There's really high peaks and some kind of lower valleys. So I think that's some of the stuff you got to have to clean up. But I, I think that's fair about almost any coach in the Pac-12. We haven't seen, you know, none of the teams, you know, the, the Stanford lost two games. That's the best the, you know, the conference had to offer this year. So I think some of that more consistent play, I think it's not just a Jim Mora thing. I think it's across the board. Yeah. So there we go. And then... Got a couple more. Oh, we've got our, our man Nick. We haven't even gotten to this yet. Nick. All right. Pac-12 title game. This is Nick from Cyprus. Real quick, short and sweet, I hope. Week USC 22 versus Stanford 40. I think it was 41. Who cares? Uh, was it me or did this game remind me of the Oregon game? Slow start, comeback, and a fumble TD by Stanford before the route was on. I'm singing the blues today as our four coaches from the USC, as, as our four coaches from the USC staff. Long, crazy year by USC, good, the bad, and the ugly. One thing I liked from the Pac-12 network was all century team where it's dominated, was USC dominated the whole roster. Defensive all century and Ronnie Watt and coach of the year, John McKay. Uh, question, who do you have as your early favorite to win the Pac-12 next year? Fight on. You know, I, I love Nick's emails because he always finishes with a really good question. He always does. He's always yeah. got like two or three really good questions. Today it's just one, but I think this is an interesting one. Who do you have as the early favorite to win the Pac-12 next year? That's a, yeah, it is a good question. You know, and I, it's like I was kicking myself and thinking that Stanford was not going to, you know, they're going to take a step backwards and they of course did not. Um, I think losing Kevin Hogan is going to be a real big deal, but they're still going to have Christian McCaffrey. It, they've just looked the best. And, uh, you know, I think the top two would be Oregon and Stanford. I might put give Stanford a little edge at this point. Yeah, I think uh, I'm interested to see what Washington looks like at the start of next year um, and see if they get through the offseason fairly healthy and, you know, nobody transfers out and the whole deal because I think they could be potentially really good. Stanford, I think they should take a step back because Kevin Hogan had a really good year and he's he's finally exhausting his eligibility this year. It seems like he's been there for about a decade. Um, so I think Stanford could take a step back offensively, and their defense should be better. I mean, it's always that thing with Stanford. You know, one year their offense is pretty good and their defense isn't so great, and then it just kind of shifts, and then suddenly the defense is elite again. Um, but I think the the I, I think they could take a small step back from this kind of high point they're at right now and then build for another really good season in two years. Um Oregon will have to figure out a quarterback uh, because yeah. Vernon Adams is leaving again, so they might have to hit the transfer market again or you know, hope that one of the guys in the program has developed. Um, I, I think Washington could emerge in the North, but I think it's going to be between those three. I think Washington State, I think they're a com- I think it's kind of like Texas Tech back when Leach was there. I think they're a comfortable, you know, eight and four, maybe even a, you know, on a really, really good year up to a 10 win program, but I don't know that they're going to consistently beat the teams they need to beat to, you know, win the North. 
And then in the South, I think it's, I mean, I hate to sound LA centric on this podcast, but I think it's <laughs> going to be again, uh, a USC UCLA thing. Um, Utah is probably going to take a step back because they lose Booker. They lose Wilson. Um, Arizona, it's hard to really gauge because they really took a step back this year. Obviously with Scooby right out. Um, that hurt them. And yeah, I think the sense is that he's coming back for next year because he missed so much of the season, right? Yeah. I so, believe so. You get him back, their defense should be okay. Um, ASU, they, they have to break in a new quarterback again. Um, find a new receiving core again because Devin Lucian, who is their best receiver this year, is graduating. Um, so I think with all the uncertainty there, I think it's probably going to be a UCLA USC thing again, but I think there's more uncertainty in the South. Um, I think the, the, there's kind of a three team race developing in the North, but going to be, going to be really bonkers. And I have no feel for who actually is the early favorite. Yeah. I mean, what does Washington state go back to kind of where they were or they, they take more steps forward. Does Arizona state kind of figure things out? Does Colorado finally break through and, and get to, you know, six and six or whatever and make a bowl? I mean, there's so much, you know, who knows with USC, you're going to have, you know, Clay Helton, first time head coach. Um, there's, I, yeah, I think there'll be a lot of drama, but I think if you're going to look for who's going to be, who's the chance to make the playoff, like you would have to start with Stanford and Oregon, I think. And everyone else is kind of like, maybe, but you know, like it would have to all fall their way. Yeah. I, I, I think next year they could be on the outside looking in again as a conference because I don't think either of those teams is going to project to be elite, Oregon or Stanford. I think they're both probably in the same boat they were this year where they're going to be a two or three loss team. And then in the South, all right, maybe, maybe USC and UCLA are both very talented, but USC opens against Alabama, which isn't going to do you any favors. No. And UCLA's non-conference involves two road trips, one to Texas A&M and one to BYU. I mean, just silly non-conference scheduling, I think, by both teams. Um, and I, I think that's going to limit their potential. I mean, unless they somehow, one or the other goes undefeated in conference, which I very much doubt will happen. Or, I mean, if you win one of those games and lose, you know, like if, if UCLA sweeps those two, wins on the road at A&M and BYU, and maybe loses one game in conference, they're yeah, probably in but, the playoff. You know, I mean, that's you have an opportunity there by playing those games, too. Sure, sure, sure. That's that's absolutely valid. <laughs> All right. Um, we've got two more. Uh, this one is from Steve in New Jersey. Comment. Uh, given Dave's propensity for being inaccurate of on the USC pick, I hope he refrains from picking USC to win or even cover the point spread in the future. Sorry, couldn't resist. Fair, fair. I feel you. I feel you. I'm sorry on that. Um, all right. And here's an actual question. It seems like over the past few years, the Stanford team is significantly better at avoiding injuries. There are a few websites that provided historical injury reports that bear this out. Given that Stanford seems to be on the cutting edge for a number of innovative innovative changes, such as nutrition analysis and use of the virtual human interaction lab, to your knowledge, is there anything the trees are doing differently to minimize player injuries? You got anything on this, Ryan? You know, uh, we actually talked to um, Larry Scott before the championship game about the virtual reality technology they do um and they you know they develop this stuff and i guess other programs are using it in the country they haven't really used it in the pac-12 and someone was asking is that like a competitive advantage and i larry scott seemed to think that it was available for everyone but i think a lot of that kind of gps stuff and virtual reality i think that's there's a lot of you know not just on the field performance but also you know they track 
um, you know, reps and all, you know, how far you run and all that kind of stuff. That, I mean, I think that might have something to do with it. Um, but I don't know. I'm not sure like practice schedules or whatever, if they do anything different, but I think some of the technology that they've used and some of it that they've developed, I think has helped. Yeah. Okay. I, I know nothing about it, so I'll take your word for it. Okay. And then uh, he says, give credit to Stanford for their season this year and winning the conference. That said, if there's a technology that's been developed by a team, in this case, the virtual human interaction system, is it considered fair or even within the boundary of Gord's sportsmanship for that team to offer this technology to other teams with the exception of conference opponents? We all know what the infusion of Nike and Phil Knight money has done to improve the Oregon program. I understand that some teams are going to have some natural advantages by legacy, location, and financial resources. While it may be a program's choice not to emulate another program system, like copying Chip Kelly's read option offense, but to preclude its utilization is borderline cheating. More so that an, that a wannabe agent paying the rent of a, of a parents of a player as an incentive to represent that player for a future NFL career. Thoughts? Um, so that, yeah, that's what it, when, uh, we asked Larry Scott, or someone asked Larry Scott about that specifically. He did not, uh, feel that there was something that Stanford was, uh, stopping the rest of the conference for, you know, their, the conference opponents or their conference mates from using. I don't know for sure. I'd heard that too, but at least for what Larry Scott was saying, he made it sound like that it was going to be available to everybody. But yeah, if it's something you, you would let like Alabama use or Florida State use and not, um, Oregon, then yeah, I think there would there would probably be an issue with that. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I think you you find competitive advantages by doing certain things. I mean, yeah, I, I guess limiting other teams. I don't know. I mean, certain teams have innovative like film strategies where they you know break down film a certain way. Are they obligated to share it with other people? I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, what if a, what if they went to the thing? Well, like okay, Stanford, okay, UCLA, you can't have it. And we're going to let BYU and Texas A&M have it to try to beat you. Like, I mean, right. you could yeah. go there too. Yeah. That's, that's a tough thing. That's, that's, that's a weird thing to, uh, deal with. All right. We got one more question. New Josh Rosen nickname. This is from Scott in Santa Monica. Hey guys, as always, love the pod. Keep doing a great job. Before he even set foot on campus, Rosen had plenty of nicknames. The Rosen one, Chosen Rosen. Jay Chosen, etc. Personally, I think we need a more lighthearted nickname. Football is just a game, after all. Do we really need to get semi-biblical about it? How about the to- the hot tub dime machine? It-, <laughs> <laughs> it keeps it fun, harkens back to a better time when UCLA housing didn't infringe upon his God-given right to a hot tub, and dude drops dimes on the reg. Thoughts? Wow, I love it. Sure. I love it. I think that might be that might be his his new nickname. So float that on bro and see what they say. I I think I'm gonna have to. I think I'm gonna have to. That's good stuff from Scott. I like it. I I have no other thoughts on that. Do Do you have any other nicknames for Josh Rosen? No, no, that's good. I mean, yeah, I don't like people would give him crap for having. You know, he had a hot tub in his dorm room and an Arizona co-ed. Like, in it was like yeah. you win, dude. Like that's not why would you give him crap for that? Like he won. Yeah. Completely winning. Uh, oh, we got one more question. One more question just came in. Let's do it real quick. Hot, hot off the press. Okay. Zach and NYC. Hi, Ryan and Dave. First, big shout out to Christian McCaffrey for running through the SC defense like Sherman in Atlanta. His gazillion yards of total offense certainly made me feel better after UCLA's inept performance this week, the week before, and most importantly prevented USC from returning to the Rose Bowl. On to the questions. 
First, prior to the season, you both filled out an all-LA depth chart, choosing between the players on UCLA and USC. Now that the season is over, could you repeat the exercise? We will, but not this one. We'll, <laughs> we'll do this. We'll do this later on in the season. But put a pin in that. Yep. Uh, second, considering the year that Wazoo had and Mike Leach's history at Texas Tech, where do you see the Washington State program relative to its Pac-12 peers? Has he built a perennial eight-nine win program with a chance at a conference title every few years when the stars align, or is this year his ceiling? Lastly, for the next five years, would you rather be a Washington State fan or a fan of one of the Arizona schools? I'll take it in reverse order. I would rather be a Washington State fan. I think Leach is a good enough coach that he's going to sustain that program as kind of a, you know, 7-9 in a good year, a 10-win program. Um, I, I think there's definitely the potential to compete for a conference title there. I think there's some hurdles to still get over. Still got to get over, you know, Stanford and Oregon. You know, they beat Oregon this year, but they still got to kind of get get over that hump where they're consistently doing that. But I think the the trend line is definitely pointing up for that program. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they haven't hit their ceiling the way the defensive line played. I think the way that they're, you know, developed quarterbacks. Um, yeah, I think they they can definitely go high. They almost beat Stanford this year. But if I had to pick a fan, I think I might pick one of the Arizona schools just because if Oregon looks like they're coming back and, and Stanford is where they are, it might be tougher to, to get to a championship game if an Arizona school might be a little bit easier path. So if you want to try to win the Pac-12, and my, I think maybe you have an easier time at Air, the Arizona schools the way it's set up right now than maybe Washington State. All right. Good stuff. Sweet, man. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to do a little radio interview. So we're probably, you know, got to end the podcast. We're about an hour. So it's not too bad, Dave. Not too bad. Not too bad at all. All these people calling me. I did a Fortune magazine interview this week. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, this is crazy. Like, you're teaching classes at UCLA, <laughs> doing Fortune magazine <laughs> interviews. What is your life, my friend? Yeah. Voting for the Heisman. You know, it's all Fair good. Enough. Whatever. All right. Well, hey, Dave, great stuff. I'm glad we got to do this. And I can't believe we did an hour. We tried to do a short one. It's an hour. I know. Um, I know. But awesome stuff. That's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. You are listening to the Podcast of Champions, and we will talk to you next time.